0: So one of the things I've always wondered is, you know, how do I use uh, epistemic in a sentence? I used to only use it sort of like ironically when I was talking about, you know, like Google versus Wikipedia. Um, But you know, I've started using it quite a bit more um, having talked to philosophers. Um, How how do we use that in a sentence so that we don't make a fool of ourselves?
1: (laughs) Well, right. Epistemic means that it concerns knowledge or justification or those kinds of issues. So. Uh, you could ask what the epistemic status of first-person data is, right? Whether it counts as knowledge, whether we we're justified in believing it. That would be that would be one way to use epistemic in this context. And so, is epistemic
0: data? Is it? Does it hold a special place? You know, like you, you said uh, in our previous conversations, that um, there's a I guess a clade of intellectuals who believe that first-person data isn't only acceptable in science; that it's actually. Uh, it has some actual special properties that uh, deserve recognition. Right.
1: Um, these people sometimes don't use the word data exactly, although they can get there. But the there's this long tradition in philosophy, uh, Descartes being the most famous early proponent of it, that we have absolutely perfect knowledge of our own stream of inner experience or consciousness or whatever you want to call it, right? So... If you're thinking kind of like, well, Descartes said, look, you can doubt basically anything, right? You could doubt, I mean, it seems obvious to you. Anything but one thing, I guess. Right. Basically anything, almost anything. Uh right? You can doubt anything about the external world. He even thought you could doubt mathematical truths, right? Simple mathematical truths. But he thought you could not doubt, I think, and I am, right? Hence his famous, his famous, I think, therefore I am. But within the think, he included uh, lots of stuff that we would now call your stream of conscious experience, right? So the fact that you are having certain conscious experiences right now, right, even if we imagine the most radically skeptical scenario we can imagine, even if you imagine that your brain in a vat being stimulated by genius neuroscientists Mm -hmm. who are trying to delude you, even if you imagine that it's all just a dream and you've never been awake in your whole life, right, Go as skeptical as you want, Descartes says, look, still, that I'm thinking, that I'm having the thoughts that I'm currently having, that I'm having the experiences that I'm currently having, you can't doubt that. All right, so here's an intuitive example, right? You know, imagine a case where you drop a barbell on your toe and there's you're in severe pain, right? It seems very hard to doubt that you actually experience pain.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Or if you're looking at a bright red object in good light and it's in the center of your visual field, right, and you're, you're experiencing red, right. Now, if you want to go really skeptical, you could imagine maybe there's no barbell, maybe I'm a brain in a vat, but that I'm experiencing red right now, that I know for sure. That I'm experiencing pain right now, that I know for sure. So there's this infallible, infallibilist tradition in philosophy that says the one thing that we can really know for absolutely sure. Are our currently ongoing conscious experiences, like our experiences of pain, our experiences of, you know, visual sensations, auditory sensations, our inner speech, our thoughts, that kind of internal world. You know it absolutely perfectly uh, the moment you attempt to
0: know it. And just when you say, uh, is, is there some sort of caveat on there on the instantaneous aspect? Because effectively, we might not be able to trust our memories. But I right. guess at the instant, um, which is a little bit how I always consider a brain state to be, that effectively it's a little bit like it's this instantaneous, um, you know,
1: right. uh, chemical electrical process. Um, right. If you really want to go for hardcore infallibilism, uh, then, yeah, you could be wrong about your memories. Mm-hmm. Right, there are skeptics who say, "Well, what if the world was created five minutes ago, with all your apparent memories and everything in place?" Right, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it was created two seconds ago, right? So even your memories, you could doubt, right? But this experience that you're having right now, that you can't doubt. Mm-hmm. That's the idea of the infallible. List. And actually, you can kind of carve away at it, like you did. So, well, if it was a few, if it was a few moments ago, maybe you could doubt it. Mm-hmm. Another thing you can doubt in the vicinity is that you've got the right word for it. Right. You're like, imagine you're experiencing some shade of red and you're inclined to call it uh, uh, maroon. Right. But maybe you're a little wrong about what the maroon means. Maybe you think maroon is kind of scarlet, Mm -hmm. right. Instead of a more purplish kind of red. Right. You could be wrong about the word. You say, I'm having a maroon experience right now. I couldn't possibly be wrong about that. You're still right about your experience, but you might be wrong about the word that you attach to it, Mm -hmm. right? So these infallibilists, they, in order to get this uh, perfect knowledge, you have to do various moves to cut away potential sources of error. But the idea is if you home in really precisely on the right kind of thing about your own experience, you cannot possibly go wrong about it. So there's a long tradition in philosophy that says that, and there are still philosophers who say that.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, that that is really helpful because um, obviously, you know, when you presented this sort of, I guess, trichotomy of uh, beliefs about first-person data, first-person methods, um, that a priori, um, given that uh, usually what we think about is that it's we're trying to examine other people's first-person data in a way um, that that would, that then makes it seemingly challenging to say, you know, I would hold this other people's first-person data to be have some special epistemic value um but when you present it that way it does seem much more positive it seems more grounded in the fact that effectively is it just our first person data for our first person experiences that they hold in this special way
1: right so what you know for sure according to the tradition is your own experience and mm-hmm. other people's experiences it get they get it gets filtered through several possible uh, sources of error right so they have the experience. Maybe they know infallibly what their experience is, but then they have to express it in language,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And there's a possibility for a mistake there. They might confuse scarlet and maroon linguistically, even though they know perfectly well what their experience is, right?
0: I actually you suspect to- that i confuse those just on a pure <laughs> neurological level.
1: Um, like, uh, I, I, maybe. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> right. And then you've got I've to tried. hear it correctly. You've got to interpret it correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, so there are various sources of potential error in uh in understanding other people's reported first-person, potentially infallible knowledge that they have. Mm-hmm. And if you want to go really skeptical, right, their wild philosophical, skeptical thought experiments about maybe other people don't even have minds, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe nothing exists in the world except for my mind, so maybe there are no other people, right, mm-hmm. so you can... If you, depending on how tolerant you are for kind of radical seeming doubt, you could go down those paths.
0: It, it, sorry. Um, I'm just like uh, going to try to reach back in my brain. Is that, is it, is this a term like solipsism or solipsism? Solipsism yeah. Yeah.
1: is the view yeah. that, uh, the only thing that exists in the universe is me or my mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool.
0: All right. So then, um, I guess, is this, um, is this view that we've talked about? Cause obviously I think that this is, um, it's a little bit what uh, when Galtiero and I were talking, or when Galtiero was being very patient with me um, as I was feeling my way through this the first time, um, I'm not sure if that that first view that we've covered uh, just now covered is, is is it like is it a significant portion of the philosophical or uh, philosophical community that still believes this, or is it, um, is it more like a caveat, but most people are willing to go farther? Like they'll say, "Yeah, I, you have a point, but I'd like to go farther than that."
1: Um, there is a significant portion of the philosophical community who, who do believe that you can have infallible knowledge of your own current experience. You know, for example, David Chalmers, who is probably the most influential philosopher in mind of my generation, has argued for that. Um, and there are a lot of people who have been influenced by him in that. Um, so, it's definitely uh, a substantial and important continuing position.
0: Yeah. So actually, just as a random uh, side bit, I did not realize how young David Chalmers was um, because, um, you know, one of his books, I think it was uh, the was it reason and responsibility? Is it Um, Uh, the conscious mind was a conscious mind? Yeah. landmark book in 96 yeah he yeah. was
1: pretty young i think he was 30 when he published that yeah
0: yeah because like um you know he had books when i was an undergrad so i assumed that he <laughs> must have been this like dusty guy old guy at oxford or something like that and then uh when i finally looked him up and i see this like young guy he's got like a leather jacket on and his long hair and everything i was like wow i i really i really mistook that one um yeah i, I yeah. did not realize how how young he was um and obviously, he, how he became so influential at a young age. What what was it, just out of curiosity, from the philosophical community that really helped him carve out his area? Did, did, was he going into a new area or did he just um, produce work in that area that was just ex- astounding?
1: I think it was more the latter, right? So what he did was, he did two main things in, in, his, in 95 and 96 that I think built his reputation. One is he gave a name a nice name to a problem that lots of consciousness researchers and philosophers think is important. Um, We call a certain kind of thing the hard problem of consciousness. That is explaining how do you get from knowledge of the physical world, all the functional knowledge, knowledge of how the brain works, to answers about like, okay, how does consciousness arrive from that? There's something weird it seems about the idea that you could say, oh yeah, well, consciousness just is, say, this brain state. Mm-hmm. right like and then you're kind of like okay but what makes like why are 40 hertz oscillations conscious mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like that's the hard problem yes um so he gave it that name uh and a lot of people picked up on that <clears throat> so that was nice he kind of gave a name for a phenomenon uh or a problem that's troubling a lot of people we can talk more about the hard problem if you want um although well, the uh, it's related to our topic, so if you want to, we can go down that path. The other thing that he did um, that was, uh, I think, really influential was he did a really excellent job of synthesizing and summarizing and extending uh, the existing arguments against the dominant materialist or physicalist view of the mind. Right? And what was so, that? so according to materialism or physicalism, all the universe just is material or physical stuff. There's no, there are no immaterial souls. There are no immaterial properties. Right? You tell the biological biological story about humans, and you're done, mm-hmm. basically. Right? That's and that's the standard view of most kind of naturalistically inclined scientists. Right? And that had been, still is, the dominant view of the nature of consciousness in philosophy, uh, through the latter half of the 20th century till today. But there are lots of concerns about it and thought experiments you can run that make it seem like maybe it doesn't work. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. incomplete. There's something missing there. And he did a really excellent job in his 1996 book of bringing those thoughts and ideas together in a super clearly argued, um, thoroughly researched and well-structured way toward a view that is um, somewhat appealing and not kind of, contrary to science so um you so, could so, reject materialism because you think they're immaterial souls who go on to heaven after you die right of course lots of theists think that mm-hmm. but Chalmers wasn't going that way he's uh trying to do it in a much more scientifically inspired way
0: in and um, in a grounded way that wouldn't get uh the sam harris's and uh hitchens
1: of the world too riled up i guess yeah right that's right <laughs> so and he just he's uh he just, just really did an amazing job with that so he kind of uh, Let the fire under philosophers to really think about, okay, <laughs> think mm-hmm. about these challenges to materialism, these challenges to physicalism. Um, how good are they? Yeah, because
0: I mean, it would certainly you know as someone who actually sends little algorithms out in the world to think um it it seems strange to me on some level, um well, I, I don't really know what I think about it, but it's it would not seem at all weird to me essentially that we would have these you know, giant masses of organic, uh, system walking around something like me. And effectively it would just be compute with biological material and no actual consciousness would arrive like effectively that I could very much be, it wouldn't surprise me at all if that like existed where it's just, you know, we're all walking around, we're not conscious, we're just essentially things are streaming in. We're just sort of plunking around like, uh, like those little uh ball machines where they go uh, you know, go go down and hit the um little yeah. pegs and move around. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Um it, so if that is, were the
1: case. This is the zombie, this is related to the zombie yeah. thought experiment, which is not original to Chalmers, but Chalmers uh, kind of really gave it new life and pushed it a lot. Um so the zombie thought experiment is this. The following seems conceivable. Now we're not saying that it's kind of in accord with the laws of physics, mm-hmm. but at least it seems conceivable. Right, that there could be a molecule for molecule duplicate of you who does everything you do, who's embedded in the same kind of world you are, whose mouth opens and outcome apparent words, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right, but who has no conscious experiences at all. Mm -hmm. Right, this person from the outside would be behaviorally indistinguishable from you, right, if you've got every molecule, right, of course, you know, all the apparent speech and all the Bodily motions are going to be exactly the same, but this this entity, a zombie, as mm-hmm. philosophers call it, would have no conscious experience, right? So one of the, the zombie uh, argument is that that's conceivable. Mm-hmm. And if it's conceivable, then there must be a property that you have that your conceivable zombie twin lacks. And that property is the property of being conscious. Conscious. Mm-hmm right? But you and your twin have all the same material properties, all the same physical properties. Mm -hmm. So there must be some additional property, which is the property being consciousness that goes above and beyond the physical. So that's a short version of the zombie uh, thought experiment and the zombie argument against materialism.
0: And so I guess to uh, reject, uh, in order to reject that in some way, would you need to say that essentially there is some element of this physical zombie in me that would necessarily give rise to consciousness um is is that how you go about sort of if you wanted to start uh, chipping away at that
1: well you know the challenge is how do you exactly chip away at that mm-hmm. and there are several different strategies you can use to chip away at that um and one of the wonderful things about chalmers's work is that he's very good at laying out what the different strategies are mm-hmm. and then kind of showing how there are problems with all those strategies mm-hmm. right and then there are answers to those problems Mm -hmm. And then Chalmers or other people sympathetic with him have responses to those answers, right? And this is how you get a whole academic discipline going, of course, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But one thing you can say, you can say zombies aren't conceivable. You thought you conceived of something that made sense, right? Once you think about it carefully, you know, it's just... It's like saying, oh, yeah, I can conceive of a three-sided square. right? I mean, you can say those words, but that doesn't mean you really, like coherently conceived of something, right? Yeah. So Dan Dennett, for example, has uh, a response like that. Mm-hmm.
0: Right? Yeah. So I guess maybe just uh see if I can just uh, rephrase that, the idea is that um, you could, just because you can put the words to things, you say, I could conceive of this and you describe something that very, like, you know, you can put it into English words. It doesn't mean that in that description, you haven't dis- described something that is in factually, in fact, you know, naturally impossible you know the the three-sided square is naturally impossible despite the fact that you can put it to words and you can say oh yeah uh, i have words for this therefore it's possible this is there's something inherent to the nature of reality or the nature of the universe such that such a zombie could not in fact exist because such a zombie would having all those physical traits would naturally give rise to consciousness um or did i just mangle it again
1: and don't don't yeah, don't, don't that feel wouldn't quite, that wouldn't okay. quite pass the philosophical muster. It's okay. That's but, fine. No no no. We can go ahead. Like how to get. Let me just tell you. Let me just tell you one other move. And I think this mm-hmm. move is closer to what you just said. But um, it is that you is to impair the move from conceivability to possibility. Mm-hmm. Right. So the first move says you can't even conceive of it of a mm-hmm. zombie. Right. The second move says well you can conceive of it. Right? But does conceiving of it mean that it's possible mm-hmm. Right? And then there's this whole literature on what's the relationship between conceivability and possibility and what are the different kind of kinds of possibilities. So philosophers distinguish, for example, mm-hmm. between um, what's sometimes called natural or nomological possibility and metaphysical possibility. right? So natural possibility is possibility in accord with the laws of nature. Mm -hmm. and metaphysical possibility is something stronger than that so if you can imagine say uh your microphone floating up into the air in violation of the laws of nature not because some magnet's pulling it or something like that but Mm -hmm. just violating the laws of nature right there's a sense in which that's possible and a sense in which it's not it's not possible by according to the laws of nature but but it's it's not a there's nothing incoherent in conceiving of it in the same way that a three-sided square is incoherent Mm -hmm. right so there's there's uh, a weaker sense of possibility um, on which conceivability seems like it might be a good test of possibility, right? That weaker sense is the sense in which zombies are possible according to Chalmers, right? So the question is, so Chalmers thinks, and this is why what you're saying wasn't quite right, Chalmers mm-hmm. thinks that if you set up all the physical stuff right and you you let the laws of nature run, you'll get consciousness, mm-hmm. Right. Just like if you set the microphone on the desk and there are no magnets or tricks, it'll stay there. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But that doesn't mean that there isn't some broader sense of possibility in which the microphone could float up or Mm -hmm. there could be a zombie. Mm -hmm. And the question is, one of the central questions here is how much can you draw from that? Mm -hmm. What kinds of conclusions about the world can you draw from the fact that there's this broader sense of possibility or conceivability on which... You could have consciousness or you could lack consciousness despite having all the biological, neurophysiological stuff in place.
0: Yeah. No, that is is really helpful. I guess uh, sort of the way that I was uh, approaching is uh, you might be familiar or might not. um, I I won't second guess you on, but the the original proof, for example, that the square root of two was not a rational number. And the idea is, you know, they effectively set up this thing where, well, let's – Let's posit a rational number that is the square root of two. And what they did is when they, you know, you you, you take that proposition and when you carry it to its logical uh, conclusion, essentially you create a, an impossible scenario. Um, right. And so I guess I, uh, when, when, when I first heard that, that was sort of the way that I was trying to uh, wrap my mind around it a bit, that effectively you I could see, you know, yes. set something up like this. And when you bring it to either you've created a scenario that's, you know, either guaranteed or impossible or simply true so yeah that but that's really helpful right. well, i I, yeah, I do appreciate that um you uh drawing that out or alternatively i could just be obstinate and say you know what do you mean erica i that, that's what i said the first time you just weren't listening it, it,
1: could, it could be yeah. you were using the word natural in there mm-hmm. yeah or something like that with zombie <laughs> <laughs> which gets the force of the metaphysics the force of the possibility wrong mm-hmm. which is right so Chalmers thinks that zombies are not naturally possible, not mm-hmm. nomologically possible. If you set up the laws of nature, you're not going to have any, mm-hmm. right? So that was part of what you were saying. That was you weren't um, showing the sensitivity, to the distinction between different different kinds of what philosophers call modal force
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: that's necessary for for the the argument. Which is totally fine. It makes sense because I didn't introduce that stuff or clarify that part of the argument when I was setting it up. <laughs> yeah, I, no, it's, it's fine. Yeah. Not only did I not stick the verbal landing, but I landed on the wrong
0: <laughs> mat. Um so maybe that's it. Yeah, but um yeah, I, I I do appreciate it. And just, you know, sort of going through some of these ideas. I, I I know a lot of people in the machine learning community, um, they do tend to think about their algorithms in a certain way. And um um, you know, I, I do wonder if on some level and this is obviously just um, just a little bit of a, like not not even mind game that I take seriously, but you know, like I have algorithms that want to optimize things. And the fact, the question is like, is that optimization, it can in some way, is it even on the spectrum of, you know, something experiencing like a preference or dispreference. And I, I it seems very mm-hmm. hard for me to believe that on some level, it seems hard for me to believe that these two things would even be on the same continuum. And then on the other bit it says, I don't know. What do I know? You know, I messed up the last thing. Who's to say I won't get the next thing wrong, too. Um, But yeah.
1: Right. So there there are um, there are people who think that anywhere you have uh, basically information being integrated or maybe even anywhere you have any kind of physical matter at all, you've got some kind of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a nest of problems about um, about where do you draw the line between conscious and non-conscious entities? That actually, I think, is a, a really um, difficult theoretical tangle. Yeah, and is, one answer to that is to say, well, no, everything's conscious. This is the mm-hmm. this is called panpsychism. It's recently become a kind of it's definitely still a minority position in philosophy, but it's recently been getting some attention in philosophy. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I guess uh, before we – we'll hop back on to uh, first-person uh, first data, first-person methods shortly just so that we can give the people what they wanted. Um, right. But uh, um, is it necessary to even be able to draw a line in order to say that these are two distinct things? Or um, like sh- do we need a demarcation in that? Or is it just enough yeah. to say um, we can't uh, create an exact line, but there is some difference um, that we can appreciate?
1: So I call this the continuity problem, mm-hmm. and I think you have basically a quadrilemma. Ooh. A quadrilemma is like a dilemma, except it's got four horns instead of just yeah. two. <laughs> All right. So if you think about, uh, I think you've got basically four possibilities re- regarding the scope of consciousness. Right. One is you can say, look, humans are, are unique. They're distinct. We're special. Mm-hmm. Only humans are conscious. There's a bright line between humans and everything else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: we're conscious, even our dogs don't have
0: consciousness. The dogs are the first ones who I was
1: going to attack. Like, literally, the moment, the moment you said, I was like, uh, little wicked willow are uh, out of the equation. Yep. Right. So, Descartes held this view, and there's, uh, you know, there's a rumor, I think it's not true, that in demonstrating this, he threw a cat out the window. <laughs> and, this is just a machine. <laughs> I don't think he really did that, but, um, right, so that's, that's horn one. You could say that. Mm-hmm. But it's a horn because it's a kind of hard Thing to say. I mean, there's something that seems kind of unintuitive or unscientific about it.
0: Yeah, like I mean, because also you'd be throwing a, a Homo erectus and all those other, you know, highly highly successful other <laughs> hominids. Um, right.
1: Let's not even pay attention. I mean, yes, yeah. yeah, so you get problems then if you try to do it in development or in evolution, mm-hmm. um, also, right? So okay. So horn two is there's a bright line somewhere. Horn two says okay. Just keep going down. The, let's let's do it with animals instead of doing it in development or evolution. Mm-hmm. But you can do the same things in development and evolution. Let's just do it with animals, right? So you know, you can kind of think about the complexity, the psychological complexity of animals, and you find here's the uh, here's the minimum com- complexity animal that is conscious,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the next animal down is not conscious, mm-hmm. right? So maybe the maybe it's you know one genus of toad versus another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or more, more ideally, which ones we want to eat and which ones we don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> right? But there's something strange about that. You say, okay, well, you know, this genus toad is conscious, but this very similar, but slightly less sophisticated genus of toad mm-hmm. is not conscious. But that's weird because, you know, across the spectrum of animals, there's a, you know, it's a continuum mm-hmm. of, co- uh, of the kinds of cognitive and physiological things capacities and traits that we associate with consciousness. That's so it's weird to think there'd be a bright line somewhere, you know, like between mm-hmm. this toad and another. Right. There is. There's it's <laughs> hypnotoed.
0: Hypnotoad is the <laughs> is the bright pulsating line between these uh various clades of toad that um that uh, that that allows to decide what's conscious and not. Sorry, I'll let you get on. What's the next horn?
1: <laughs> All right. Yeah. So the next horn, we can do our horns in a slightly different order, but um I'll go to what I usually use, the fourth horn, because of how we introduce this. Uh, The third horn is, okay, you don't have to draw a bright line. Let's just go all the way down Mm -hmm. to electrons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Fermions and bosons, they're conscious too. You don't have to draw. You don't say only humans are conscious. You don't draw a line anywhere. Everything's conscious, right? That's also strange, right? So Mm -hmm. the, the first option is strange. Humans are conscious is strange. The second option is strange to draw a bright line somewhere in what seems like a continuum of species. The third option is strange because now you're saying electrons are conscious. Mm-hmm. So then the fourth option is the one that you suggested. Um, and that's to say, look, it's not a bright line matter. And that works for so many different traits. Most things in the world are not bright lines.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But for consciousness, it's weird. And I think the problem, I think it's interesting to think about how weird it is. In fact, I do not think we yet have in consciousness science a good account of how vagueness would work with respect to being a conscious entity. Mm -hmm. Normally, we think that persons, centers of experience, conscious entities, there's a countable number of them. You've got zero or you've got one or you've got Mm -hmm. 17, right? No one says, "Okay, there's that's three eighths conscious."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: No one says, "Here you have one point two five subjects of experience."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's it, all of our concepts of consciousness seem to be on-off concepts. If you think about immaterial souls, right? We think of immaterial souls as like, you either got one or you don't. Like what would Mm -hmm. it be to have, you know, two thirds of an immaterial soul? That doesn't make sense, right? But the same thing happens on more physicalist views too, right? We don't have really a good set of categories for thinking about what it would be to be a kind of vague and determinate in between case of being conscious. Mm -hmm. Let me just give you one more example to kind of get your mind around the difficulty of this. Think about visual experience. Right, you can think about it getting narrower and narrower and narrower right so your your field of vision gets smaller and smaller. You can think about it losing its coloration and saturation specificities that all kind of becomes a gray right This is an example from Charles Seward And then you can think about like the minimum visual conscious experience but like one little gray dot in the middle of your visual field mm-hmm. and then it blinks out right? But there is a determinate discrete difference, it seems, between having the tiniest little bit of conscious experience and having none whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And that is a discrete jump, not something that can be modeled very easily with a continuum. Mm-hmm. John Searle, another well-known philosopher, says consciousness is like money. He gives this example. He says, look, you can have a little money, you can have a lot of money, but there's a discrete difference between having only like a nickel or a penny mm-hmm. and having no money at all. Mm-hmm. So, right, so the fourth horn, so we've got our, I already explained those three horns, but the fourth horn is to say that consciousness is this kind of, admits of these vague indeterminate cases where it's not, it's not clear whether consciousness, well, clear is an epistemic term. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's not determinately the case whether consciousness is present or not. And that's actually really hard to theorize and get our minds around. I think it might be the right answer. Mm -hmm. But to kind of my interest and amazement, and I'm actually hoping to write a paper about this, uh, we haven't really theorized it very well. What would that mean? What would that amount to? Oh, one more thing I'll say to get a little clearer on this. There's a big difference between having determinate, determinately conscious experience of an indeterminate content and being not quite conscious, uh, of being an indeterminate state between conscious and non-conscious. I'm going
0: to need that one again, if you don't mind. So, um... Uh, You can even just repeat the sentence, just so that I can... uh, I'll give you an
1: example, and then I'll repeat the sentence. Here's an example of an indeterminate content. Some people think that you could imagine a triangle without imagining it as equilateral or scalinon or isosceles. Right? You can kind of just imagine a general triangle. Can you consciously imagine that there's some debate about that but if you can't imagine that that's a an image that has some indeterminate content right It's not determinate exactly what the interior angles of that triangle are mm-hmm. right So but you determinately have a you have a determinate it's determinately the case that you have a conscious experience of that indeterminate content right
2: mm-hmm.
1: Does that make sense Yeah. Right, So that's the other thing, right? You can imagine your experience getting a determinant you know, or hazy fuzzy, maybe as you're falling asleep you're getting confused Mm -hmm. right? But that's, but imagining that is not yet to imagine what it would be to be not, for it to be not quite accurately the case to say you're conscious but also not quite accurately the case to say that you're not conscious. Okay. Cool. a long answer to a short question I guess, but yeah, I think it's no. fascinating.
0: Yeah, no, that, that is that is appreciated. And uh, thanks for uh, your patience on that one. Um, I'll, of course, maintain to my grave that I described the whole thing correctly in the first place. Um, but um, I guess, well, yeah. So um, now I guess back to first-person data, first-person methods. Um, where would you like to begin, uh, begin with that? Um, we've, uh, sh- uh, I guess, we, we, we sort of carved out this one... Um, action, if you will, um, about how people view it. Obviously, um, I suspect many of the people, for example, in my audience uh, would either probably fall more towards being ambivalent or skeptical about uh, the the nature of some of these things, where effectively that there are either um, hard third person quantities that can be measured and examined, um, or alternatively that we should probably just stick to the third personization of these first person methods. So, uh, however, these first person data emit a more third person data that we can examine. um But uh, how, how how would you like to divide uh, the battlefield, so to say?
1: Right. So, I'll just state my position. <laughs> Why <laughs> don't we do that's that? good. Yep. So this has been going for almost forty minutes, I think. um ah. <laughs> I don't want to exhaust your viewers too much.
0: <laughs> oh, no, no, no. The, the, my, my viewers are the people who do
1: listen to this type of stuff. So you are in good company. So let me just tell you my position. My position is that we need first-person methods. We need to introspect in order to understand the mind. Mm-hmm. But we're really bad at it. Mm-hmm. So we're we we we're stuck with uh, needing to rely on a methodology that is unreliable. And that is the problem. Mm-hmm. So I'm a skeptic about first person methods in one sense, and that I think that the people who say that the results you get by asking people about their experiences and why they did stuff and all those kinds of stuff, you end up, you end up getting a lot of messy, not very good data. Mm -hmm. And you really probably shouldn't rely on much of what people say in answer to those questions, except under very specific circumstances. I'm a skeptic about them in that sense. But a lot of people are skeptical about it in that sense, are optimistic in another sense, and they think, well, but we can do perfectly fine without that stuff, right? Just Mm -hmm. throw it away, (laughs) right? (laughs) I'm in the unfortunate position of thinking you can't throw it away. You need it. Mm -hmm. But, but, But it really, like... But it's very hard and we're not very good at it. and most of the scientists who are trying to do it don't do it very well.
0: Mm-hmm. What what do you think because uh, I think this this gets to a little bit more of a trackable point. what what would how would someone start progressing from a scientific perspective towards improving um, this, I guess analytical process or uh, this information process? Is it in the measurement? is it in the control of, um, I guess, uh, external factors. How, how do you even begin to sort of grapple with the problem? And just, let's just say right. you are constrained by reality. You could just say, like, what's your ideal scenario that would get into these things?
1: Right. I think the ideal scenario is when you have convergence among three different sources of evidence. And the convergence would be among introspective evidence gathered through verbal report. By participants who aren't aware of what's going on with the other two kinds of evidence, otherwise the reports might be biased. Mm-hmm. Right. Introspective evidence. So let's say let's say that you're trying to figure out whether someone is a person who has vivid visual imagery or whether they don't have vivid visual imagery. I choose this example because there is a huge literature, hundreds of studies. On the vividness of visual imagery, much of which relies on this questionnaire called the Vividness of Visual Imagery Questionnaire, the VBIQ. Well named. Um, yeah, right. And there's this big literature on it, where they ask people basically, "How vivid are your images?" You know, picture your mother, right, or picture a sunset, mm-hmm. and you know, describe how. Vivid, tell me how vivid this this image is on some scale from you know one to five. So there's a huge literature on these self of vividness. And there have been all of these attempts to try to c- correlate it with behavioral data. Like, right, how well do people do on visual folding tasks or visual rotation tasks? And it turns out, and lots of other kinds of things, visual memory. It mm-hmm. turns out that there is almost no relationship between people's self-reports of their imagery experiences and their performance on cognitive tests that you'd think would test the presence or absence of imagery. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you get some positive results, right? The literature is biased toward reporting positive results. Yeah. But I think a good skeptical review, like I did in my 2011 book on this, right, a good skeptical review of the literature, you just find an unsystematic smattering of positive results that don't replicate, mixed in with lots of null results. And it just looks like basically there's no relationship that, that people have been able to discover.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right okay so that's why i choose this example but so here's here's what would be the ideal case right you ask somebody some questions say about their imagery how vivid it is and then you have a behavioral test that you think will will accurately test whether their imagery is in fact vivid or not or at least would be be you would possibly relate to that right and then you also have some sort of neurophysiological test right you've got some say Uh, region in the brain that's associated with imagery where you expect, you say, more uh, neural activity among people when they're having a vivid image than when they're having a non-vivid image, right? And if all three of these independent sources of evidence all converge and say, hey, they're all kind of suggesting this person has a vivid image, right? They're doing great on imagery, mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral tests. They say they're having a vivid image, and we've we've located the you know the vividness neurons, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? and they're going bing 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 bing. Then you got you can say okay yeah let's, that that's a believable report. That would be a great thing to have, and we don't have a lot of it. Mm-hmm. In fact, we have, what we mostly have in consciousness studies, with some exceptions, is a mess where the, the verbal reports don't relate very well to the measured behaviors, which don't relate very well to the neurophysiological measures. Of course, there are positive studies, mm-hmm. right? But that, I think, is often attributable to, you know, the fact that you can get positive results for all kinds of reasons, mm-hmm. other than that you're really, you know, latching on to the effect that you think you're latching on to in a replicable way.
0: Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I think I think that's, uh, that. That last bit is obviously something that statisticians would tend to agree with, as far as um, the um, positive studies exist. Um, it does not mean that the actual positive phenomena corresponding to those studies actually exists in a like real way, other than the fact that it's written down on paper that has uh, been approved by Elsevier or one of those. But um, <laughs> right, yeah, cool. Um and. I guess just, um, just thinking out loud, um, because that's what I'll do. Um, the, uh, so as far as like things like behavioral tests versus say, if you had to like choose, if, if you had to think about sort of what, what, what are on the scale of like reliability, you know, coming from, you know, the biomedical engineering background, I would tend to think that, uh. The actual like monitoring of brain activity, for example, would be something. where at the very least, you could get that one right. Um, although, of course, there are actually a lot of challenges in that as well. You know, the instrumentation issues and things like that um, can very easily go awry. Uh, if you let's say you had the brain imaging or brain activity, and you had the actual self reports, um, and you found a strong connection between those. Why is it that you would need, for example, the behavioral uh, study in order to affirm um to sort of, you get to to bridge that gap but in in your opinion,
1: I like triangles. Mm-hmm. I think it's good to have three sources of evidence because there are lots of reasons two things can hook up mm-hmm. other than what you want. but That's if you get point. three really independent three things hooking up, you know then. I feel more satisfied. Yeah, if you can get, if if there's no, ba- I mean, why would there be no behavioral evidence? <laughs> but if there were no behavioral yeah. evidence for some reason, right? Oh, and yeah, I just I,
0: meant because of the experimental challenges of doing it. So, I it wouldn't be yeah. so much that behavioral evidence wouldn't be there. It's just that mm-hmm. it'd simply be too difficult to observe. So, no, like I, I definitely, yeah. I, I definitely, and it just seems like you right. might be able to at least record in a concise way. Um, the first-person data.
1: And- well, okay, so just to take, if, if if you've set aside all the behavioral evidence, how do you know that the brain region lighting up isn't cor- just correlating with the tendency to report
2: mm-hmm.
1: rather than the underlying phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, you know, just make a Mickey Mouse example, right? Maybe that brain region is the, I report I have vivid imagery region rather than yeah. the <laughs> actual vivid imagery reason, region, yeah. right? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Cool. Yeah. No. I, I
0: I do like that example. Um. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that. Um. Maybe. Uh. I guess uh, we we have a little bit more of your time, so uh, I I think I would like to use it. Um. The uh. Where where would you like to go from there? What is there some other uh particular topic that you think would be
1: worth covering from there? Um. Let me tell you about stimulus error. Okay. I was thinking about this. Um. So I listened to the first part of what you were. Your interview, uh, your draft interview with uh, Gualtiero.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I didn't listen to the whole thing partly because, as I was listening, I was feeling like Gualtiero has taken some of my answers, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I felt it would interfere with my ability to be uh, spontaneous and independent fully in this episode. But mm-hmm. um, as I was and listening, the, to the other ask, part of your
0: thing "Is like God, this guy Glenn, he's just kind of an idiot. I, I feel bad for him." <laughs> no, it's a good <laughs>
1: interview. like yeah, cool going. Let me tell you about stimulus error, because I think this might be relevant to people who are interested in methodology. This is a wonderful idea from um, the early introspective psychologist uh, 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 E.G. Titchener. Um, So this is in the early 20th century and late 19th century. Um, So Titchener thought that the primary method of psychology was introspection. Mm -hmm. And you report your experiences through introspection, and he thought that you needed expert introspectors to do it well. So he agrees with me about actually about a bunch of issues, right? Mm-hmm. One is if you want to learn about consciousness, one of the things you have to do is introspect, mm-hmm. and another thing is it's hard to do it well. You need a train. You need to have people maybe trained to do it. Mm-hmm. He wrote this sixteen hundred word training manual. Huh. might be the only person in the 21st century who's actually read the whole thing. (laughs) You wrote the 1600-word training manual on introspective training for students to become better introspectors. You know, and the thing is really interesting because he got into these debates with people from other schools of introspection about issues like whether you can have imageless thought. And these debates seemed irresolvable, as you talked about with Gualtiero, this ended up then being the apparent irresolvability of some of these debates about introspection ended up becoming part of the, the motivation for the move to behaviorism and the rejection of introspection and first person methods uh, by behaviorists uh, in the mm. teens and twenties. Uh, all right. So, but Titchener and um, uh, one of his students, uh, Boring, uh, had this, uh, idea of, of stimulus error or our error uh, as they also sometimes call it goes back to want which is the the mistake of conflating a judgment about the your experience with a judgment about the world okay so boring has this very nice example from psychophysics. And psychophysics, which is the study of the relationship between physical inputs and the experiential and other psychological processes you have in, rela- in relation to those inputs, that actually is one of the places where introspection has fared best uh, over the over the time, and where you do get often relationships between uh, physiological measures, behavioral measures, in it, and self-report measures. Uh, uh, so he has this wonderful example from psychophysics of... Uh, detecting whether you're being touched by two sharp points or one right so you could use like a compass or two sharpened pencils right and what you do is you have the person close their eyes and you you touch them with either one point or two Mm -hmm. and one of the things the introspective psychologist mapped out fairly early in the early psychophysics physicist was like well like when you're on your when you touch someone on their back they will even if the point if the two points are fairly close They'll tend to think it's one point,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but if you touch someone like on their fingertip, they'll know it's two points. Unless you mm-hmm. get them really, really close, right? So our sensitivity to whether we're being touched by one versus two points is very different in different regions of the body, and then this correlates with uh, you know how much representation they have uh, in sensory cortex and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? So the fingertips, you know, are dense with dense with uh, neural receptors and have a lot of Representation in the sensory cortex compared to the middle of the back. Mm-hmm. All right, so so you're lying there, and you're you're a subject in one of these experiments. You're being touched sometimes by two tips and sometimes by one tip. Mm-hmm. Now, if as you get to experience things better, you start to notice that on sometimes it feels to you like you're being touched by a Uh, Something that's shaped like a barbell. It's not a point. It's more like an oval. Now, here's the question. Do you say one or two? So if the question is about how many points of contact do you experience, you should say one because you experience one oval-shaped pressure sensation mm-hmm. if the if the question is how many how many sharp things are actually touching my back at this moment you should answer two because you maybe learned or surmised at least that well you know you're being touched by two sharp things and the oval thing you you figure okay well it's really two sharp things that are close together mm-hmm. right and i'm not quite able to distinguish. Mm-hmm. That they're separate points, so so I'm in, my my I'm interpreting it, I'm experiencing it as an oval, but I know it's really two sharp things, right? Mm-hmm. So if the question is a question, how many sharp things are actually touching me? Mm-hmm. Then you answer two. The question is, how many uh, regions of pressure do I experience? Yeah. Then you answer one. Mm-hmm. So whether you're asking an introspective question or a question about the world you get, you should be giving different answers, mm-hmm. depending on what the framing of the question is. And then stimulus error is the mistake of answering about the world when the question is really about your mind. Ah, uh, yeah. Right? So if you're touched by the barbell and you say, oh, two, because mm-hmm. you know there's really two things out in the world. You're, you're attacking the, 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 wrong,
0: the wrong thing. You're, you're addressing the wrong question
1: you're addressing the wrong question. You're answering a question about the world instead of asking, answering a question about your experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the concept of stimulus error. And that's, I think, an interesting thing when you're talking about, one of the things that you got into a little bit with Gualtiero is what is the boundary of a first-person method versus a third-person method? Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, one thing worth thinking carefully about. One of the things that he had said was, look, you know, if um, I say the sky is blue, I'm reporting on the outside world. If I say, I have an experience of blueness as I look at the sky, then Mm -hmm. you're reporting on yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy for research participants to blur these two things together. Yeah, definitely. Especially when they're not aware of the possibility of illusion. Because when you're not aware of the possibility of illusion, you basically give the same answers, right? If, if 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 I'm flashing, say, green lights and red lights, and I say, tell me what color you see what color it is? Tell me what color you experience, and then you go red, green, green, red, red, green, green, red. Right? Five hundred trials in, you've probably forgotten whether you're supposed to be reporting on your experience or on the light, because they're the same. They're the same. You just assume there's no error mm-hmm. in your experience, right? But in fact, the framing of the question is very different. And if you were to know that sometimes there's an illusion such that a red light looks green or vice versa, then it would start to matter. Mm-hmm. Because if you said green when you looked at a red light under illusory conditions, you'd be right if the answer is about your experience, but you'd be wrong if the answer is about the light. Mm -hmm.
0: No, I really appreciate that example because obviously, um, some bits, you know, it, it sounds a bit trivial when you haven't thought about it very much. When people say, you know, the idea is like it's the difference between asking, you know, what do you experience versus what. Is it in the real world, um, and especially because you know, given that most of our scientific tests for some of these things are undergraduates trying to look show off that they can't be tricked in some way. Um, you know, obviously the, the best of subjects. Um, that, yeah, no, I, I I think that's a that's a really good example, and um, trying to parse through that, and you know, even the the challenges of keeping people on task with that. So. Um, Back to the, I, I like the idea of was it the master introspectors, uh, the, yes. the expert introspectors? Introspective
1: um, training, yes. So Wundt, Wilhelm Wundt, who's widely credited as being the founder of scientific psychology, although, of course, you know, there are earlier people in some complex tradition, but Wilhelm Wundt uh, was reputed never to have accepted introspective reports by anybody who hadn't had at least 10,000 trials of training as an introspector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the early introspective psychologists thought if you're going to be reporting on your experiences, you should be trained because it's not easy. It's not straightforward. You yeah. can make stimulus errors like we just talked about, mm-hmm. right? But there are all other all, all other kinds of errors that you can make, um, and it's actually a very tricky thing.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's like if that if that is your sensor, you know, you obviously want to make sure that it is calibrated and um, unbiased and effectively that it's. It is delivering on the the actual goal measurement and not the purported measurement.
1: Exactly. Exactly right. Yes. Cool.
0: Well, Eric, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um that this was uh, obviously that fun for me. I think that a lot of the listeners will have enjoyed this too. And um I know that we took a, a little bit of time to get around to the topic of um first person methods, but I actually do feel as if uh, when you've described it in this experimental uh, framework that I, th- I think I've learned a bit more and I
1: appreciate it I'm, a, I, I'm inclined to say one one other thing yep to conclude if we have the time if that's oh, yeah, okay no no, no we, we we can
0: keep the party going.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think your listeners might be interested to hear a little bit about the uh, imageless thought debate which still continues
2: mm-hmm.
1: and which I think illustrates, some of the difficulties in first-person methods. Mm-hmm. So I already alluded to it briefly as part of the cause of the collapse of introspective psychology and the birth of uh, behaviorism which rejected introspection of first-person methods. The debate is this. Take a thought that you have, say the thought that Obama was president in you know, 2010. Take that thought. Now, if you think that to yourself in a sentence, in inner speech, that sentence is a kind of image. If you think that to yourself as a kind of visual image, like a maybe a picture of your of Obama's face and the picture of the word of the year two thousand and ten, mm-hmm. you know, a little timeline minerals, that you
0: pop his right or a timeline up. or
1: something like yeah. that. That's a kind of image too, right? You can have you can have auditory images like inner speech, you can have visual images, things like that can you have the thought that Obama was president in 2010 without any images like that? Is that possible? That is the question of imageless thought. Mm-hmm. And some uh, early introspective psychologists, uh, the Würzburg School, people like Oswald Cooper, uh thought that you could. Thought that, in fact, maybe lots of our thoughts are imageless in this sense. You have thoughts, but they have no kind of imagery content. They don't have to have inner speech. The thought is already fully there in your conscious experience without any kind of imagery attached to it. Mm-hmm. And other people, like Titchener, thought that no, <laughs> you can't have this kind of thing at all. Mm-hmm. They brought their own research subjects and they asked them about this. They tried to produce imageless thoughts, Mm -hmm. right? And the ones in Germany said, yeah, I have imageless thoughts all the time. And the (laughs) ones in the United States said, no, I don't have any. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And the debate continues, right? Philosophers Mm -hmm. now and phenomenologists argue Mm -hmm. about it, right? So there are some philosophers who think that when you have a thought, there's no, there doesn't have to be any imagery at all there's this wonderful example that some people find convincing again I mentioned him uh, once uh, briefly already uh, Charles Seward is uh, this wonderful example he says, look shortly after I'd had a baby I was walking from a restaurant table to the cashier and in the I'm not going to get the exact details of this right but in you know the five steps between the restaurant table and the cash register I thought now, that I have a baby. It seems to me like the world is suddenly burgeoning with babies, Mm -hmm. right? But it probably already was, and I only just noticed it now that I'm a parent. And that's kind of similar to some of these thoughts that I've been having about uh, imageless thoughts Mm -hmm. or some other aspect of a conscious experience. Now that I'm thinking about it, it seems like the world is totally full of them where I hadn't even thought about it before. Mm -hmm. So we had that pretty complex idea in five steps between his table and the cash register. And he says, that idea came to him full form. There wasn't like a visual image of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There wasn't like this long, complex sentence of inner speech. It was just Mm -hmm. like, boom. Mm -hmm. Right? Some people think, look, Mm -hmm. every time I try to form a thought, every time I have a thought, it's in imagery or it's in speech or something like that, right? That You can't have a thought without something like that going on. I went to, in 2002, I went to Santa Cruz. We spent a whole week, a whole bunch of philosophers, spent a whole week arguing about this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Thoughts were as central to our lives as the seminar table were around, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we could not we could not settle it. We continued to disagree about it. And on one view, their views are very different. In one view, you constantly got this stream of imageless thoughts that are going on. And on the other view, that modality of experience does not exist at all. Mm-hmm. It's like people disagreeing about whether vision exists or something, mm-hmm. right? Something that is almost completely pervasive, and it doesn't seem like people are just confused about the words. It's been it's defined pretty clearly, especially when you really get into the detailed discussions about it. It seems like there's a real difference in content about something that is like completely central to our to our cognitive lives and we disagree radically about it and it doesn't look like if you look at and it's, it's not like people differ cognitively like some people have complex thinking and others don't mm-hmm. i mean everybody's a philosopher or psychologist or whatever you know it's it's not like you got a bunch of glutes on one side all <laughs> like, i have no imageless thoughts i don't have any thoughts at all all right <laughs> I, I, I was actually this, just
0: thinking, like just the it's like imagine if you found someone, it's like you actually found it's like i actually have only imageless thoughts and it's like, so if you're like a spider or something, just the would is
1: so weird. Um, yeah. You know, so you. it doesn't seem very plausible that there's mm-hmm. a big cognitive difference between people on both sides of the debate. It doesn't seem very cla- plausible that there's a big physiological difference between people on both sides of the debate. Mm-hmm. It's just a hard question. The thing is, mm-hmm. it's a very hard introspective question. So contrary to what Descartes says, right? Descartes thinks we know best what's going on in our own stream of experience. I think the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. Like something like that. Do you have thoughts that outrun the structure of your imagery Mm -hmm. that can be there without imagery, including inner speech as a type of imagery and other kinds of imagery, not just visual? That is a very hard, introspective question. Mm -hmm. So that's my view. It's both really important because, like, (laughs) you know, if you want to know about inner life, you should know the answer to this question, and it's also super hard. mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I guess... uh... As someone who obviously knows basically nothing about this, uh, some of the first places my uh, my conscious image imagery thoughts went on this was that uh, you know like um, is there are there thoughts that are sufficiently basic such that they don't have imagery to them, or alternatively are there thoughts? Uh, so essentially, I know you uh, your example essentially put a complex thought just popping in into being um which is interesting because my initial reaction was to say oh well what about like maybe a large number of like very simple thoughts uh that there might be a large number of simple thoughts that have no attached imagery to them um and um or alternatively thoughts yeah. of which you're not conscious and therefore is it or if if there's a thought of which you're not conscious is that even a thought um but yeah sorry I, it's scattered there and i realize that right. i'm untrained in these things but um
1: so these are all supposed to be conscious thoughts, mm-hmm. just to clarify that yeah. part. Yeah, and it could be that very basic ones. I'll tell you one other thing about imageless thoughts, and then maybe we'll and then maybe we can finish up. Mm-hmm.
2: One
1: of my one of the most interesting methodologists of um, inner experience or consciousness is Russell Herlberg. Um, We co-authored a book together in two thousand seven, uh, from from competing points of view. I'm mm-hmm. a skeptic about the accuracy of introspective reports, and he's mm-hmm. a He's a believer in the accuracy when you apply his specific method. Okay. So here's what he does. It's a variety of experience sampling. So what what he does is he he sets participants off into their daily environments wearing a a beeper in their ear that's set to go off at a random interval from one to 60 minutes after it's Mm -hmm. set. Yes. And in their daily lives, they're supposed to collect maybe about six beeps. And then, he come, then they come back within 24 hours and are interviewed in detail about those samples. Mm-hmm. And he has a very specific interview process, uh, an important element of which is that he tries to set aside all of his and all of his participants' presuppositions about what they experienced at these sampled moments, mm-hmm. and really try to kind of like however weird it seems or whatever it seems going on mm-hmm. at that one moment right before the beep occurred your last undisturbed moment of experience narrowing in on that as closely as you can what was going on in your inner inner experience what was your experience your consciousness at that moment uh and he has a wonderful interview style for 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 getting at this where he challenges people's presuppositions but not in a threatening way you know Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he finds, so anyway, it's a very interesting methodology for trying to get at experience. Uh, it's got a, it's several virtues, which I guess we could discuss. But the reason I wanted to get into it was that it does connect with this imageless thought controversy because he thinks that people discover often that they have imageless thoughts a lot. So here's a not uncommon, th- and I've done some hurlbert style experience sampling too, uh, both as a participant and as a, an interviewer. Um, here's a not totally uncommon experience. Person will say, oh yeah, I've talked to myself all the time in inner speech. I've got this kind of constant running stream of speech in my head, you know, and when I'm not, when I don't have speech going on, maybe I've got images, but that's always going on with me. And then you get beeped. And they're like, well, this is what I was thinking. And they say what they were thinking. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, was it an inner speech? And they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an inner speech. And then they report a string of words, like maybe, oh, those flowers lasted a nice long time. Uh, And then he says, okay, well, tell me more about the string of words. Tell me more about like, when did the beep occur, did it occur right at the end of that sentence or in the middle of the sentence or something like that? And then they say, oh, well, here's when it occurred right at the end of the sentence. He's like, oh, that's interesting coincidence. Let's see Mm -hmm. if that happens again with your other beeps he says, well, can you tell me more about what the words were? And then they give a different string of words. He says, oh, that's interesting. The first time you said this string, and now you said these. Which is it? They're like, hmm, I don't know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? And these kinds of doubts, these kinds of questions raise in them a tentative doubt, like, did I really have exactly those words? Why am I not getting right about the words? And why is the beep, like, supposedly right at the end? That seems Mm -hmm. seems like a coincidence of timing. Yeah. Right? They go out for a few days and then it's not uncommon, although not always the case by any means, for them to come back and say, you know what? I had I had experience. I didn't think this was possible at all. He doesn't tell them that it's possible. They come to it on their own. I didn't mm-hmm. think this was possible at all, but it seems like I had a thought and it had a specific content, like the flowers lasted a nice long time, but it wasn't, a, no words were happening. and I didn't mm-hmm. have an image of flowers or anything like that. It just like, was the thought by itself. Mm-hmm. And Herbert's like, see, they discovered imageless thought. They didn't think they had it. And on the first samples, they were resistant to it and they tried to turn it into something else. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of already see that by the problems and their patterns of reporting, you know, but you do it enough, they get Mm -hmm. some trained in this method. And then they come up with this, they come end up discovering Mm -hmm. that they have imageless thoughts. And he thinks that this kind of, Although there's no behavioral uh, corroboration here, although there's no neurophysiological corroboration of the sort that I like, right, there is a kind of interesting path in the reporting, Mm -hmm. which adds a certain kind of credibility to the story and the idea, right? Mm -hmm. So I find that very interesting methodologically.
0: Yeah, that that, that is cool. Um, Also, because, you know, um, as you know, a lot of people who, for example, are... uh, there's a lot of people who are interested in essentially training their minds in some way such that they can start identifying and experiencing some of the, this wider spectrum of what your mind's going through. And um, I guess many people consider it to be that effectively. They aren't um, creating, their mind isn't creating something new. They're just allowing their mind to detect what is already going on there and sort of put contextualize it in some way and appreciate it more.
1: Yeah, and I know a lot of people think that they are successful in that. Hmm. And but the the evidence is not so great yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they might be, they might be successful, but I think we should be careful about assuming too quickly that people who say think they great get better insight into their own stream of experience through say meditative practice. Mm-hmm really are getting the better insight they think they are maybe they are maybe they aren't i think the behavioral evidence uh is still it's still kind of weak again this is one of the areas this is one of those areas where you can find some positive studies Mm -hmm. but it's also one of these areas where people are pretty where there's i think a lot of pressure toward reporting positive results yeah right? Especially the kind of people who want to study this are the kind of people who want positive results, maybe they're yeah. often committed meditators, right? Mm-hmm. So there are some positive results. Often the studies are kind of methodologically weak. There aren't that many studies, mm-hmm. you know? So I think the, the jury's still out on that and there are reasons to be nervous. Um, like I already, I mentioned the imageless thought debate. I mentioned the vivid, vividness of imagery problem. There, there are lots of reasons to think that people's reporting of their experiences, it might people might be very overconfident Mm -hmm. in their reporting of their experiences. Yeah. I guess some initial things
0: that I think would probably make that would challenge our ability. Let's just, if you presuppose, for example, that these um these methods do work in a subset of people on a continuum of, you know, effect size. Um that the idea is several of the challenges that can arise are that, you know, um, if you are effectively trying to uh, quantify, you know, a single effect size, or at least identify that there's a single effect size across a a patient cohort, you know, where effectively you have people who will have the no effect size, uh, no effect. um, And then you'll have people who do have effect and that effect size can vary. um, That obviously if your metric, you know, obviously if you're averaging your metric across the population of that, that becomes a very fuzzy thing. and that's true
1: yeah. that's true and, and i do i would i would add, add a caveat also to what i just said which is that very experienced meditators mm-hmm. uh who have long training there are uh i think it's pretty robust that there are some uh neurophysiological differences between them and other people when they say that they're in deep meditative states mm-hmm. uh, so that's not something we would cast doubt on um but um, more casual but, meditators our friends yeah. <laughs> that that uh, is left to. yeah well
0: because I mean you, you could essentially be concerned like something more like a, akin to a diet where people are coming in from a large number of baselines um and uh, yeah. health statuses and what their baseline diet was and then uh, there's how rigorously they actually perform the exercise um and things like that yeah. so I, I could definitely see where um, you would want to either be very specific in your measurement essentially a personalized a first not first-person, but like a in-of-one type approach where you would at least very much want to personalize from an individual's basis, baseline. And then you'd also want to very quickly separate groups between people who, instead of saying, here is the effect size, it's, well, here's the group who had no effect, here's the group who did have an effect, and here's the distribution of that effect size,
1: I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's an interesting um, potential area. It's an interesting area for research. I think there's still a lot to be done mm-hmm. uh, in that particular question Cool.
0: I mean, man, you you gave us a, a lot of uh, good examples and some things to think about. Um, Eric, thanks so much. I I do appreciate it. And uh, maybe we'll just at some point, um, if you enjoyed this, at all we'll bring you back on. We'll talk about just something else.
1: Sure. Yeah. Great. Happy to talk about it. I'm working on a paper on validity right now. By the way, speaking of statistics stuff. So. Well,
0: well, and uh, what? But what do you what do you mean by validity? Um, just uh, you might as well just go from the top of that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Um, so this paper is the title of it is, um, the necessity of, uh, construct and external validity for generalized causal, uh, for generalized causal statements. Um,
0: I think topic. I know what our next talk is going to be on. <laughs> yeah. It, we, right. we, yeah. The
1: idea is that if you're going to, you need, you don't need just internal validity, but you need construct and external validity. If you're going to make a, a scientific generalization. Mm-hmm. So.
0: yeah no that is cool i am wanting um I, I am wanting to start uh just like you know this bit um this my my, my, my mini series are nested in mini series so obviously this bit on first person methods and data was nested in sort of the uh science versus pseudoscience mini series which is in turn nested inside my philosophy of data science series um but causality is definitely something that I'd like to get into because it is i find it very difficult to wrap my head around in a way that would make me feel like I can be productive and understand it in some useful way. So Eric, um it's it's not on the calendar, but it's it's in the horizon. I can I can visualize it. It's a it's a visualized thought now. Us meeting again in the future. All right. Thanks cool. for having me on. No problem. Hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really want to go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. If you want to go totally crazy beyond that, forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too or a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week. So in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest. As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed in the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, etc. like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employer's views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website.